You know, uh, today's sermon title is called Jesus, Lord of the Gentiles. We don't hear that phrase very much, Jesus, Lord of the Gentiles. And I was thinking about traveling. I've been blessed to get to visit a lot of countries. And, and one thing that I always experience that you may be surprised of is it's very overwhelming traveling. It's overwhelming when you go, especially when you go mindful of the gospel and you go into countries with very few believers and you see the tens of thousands of people on the streets or, or you fly over and you see village after village or city after city and airport after airport and you just begin to watch people and you say, do these people know the gospel? What a mission we have. What's the hope? Um, I've been in uh, most continents, a lot of major cities and always have that same experience overwhelmed until, until I get with the church. I've been in Brazil worshiping with the mosquitoes abiding in the open air, been in the West Indies worshiping in the hull of a battleship with American soldiers. I've been in Africa worshiping under a mango tree where the drum is the only worship instrument. I've been able to worship in India with loudspeakers so loud it would probably blow the windows off the side of the church here. I've been able to go into Cambodia and, and worship with humble farmers, so poor that we took the Lord's Supper and all they had were Tylenol cups with water in them and a ball of rice that we would pick. Been able to worship in an apartment building in, in quiet in the Middle East so no one would hear us and on and on and on. And when you're with the church, you recognize there's a pattern here. Number one, the church is God's plan. Number two, Jesus is Lord over all the earth. It's amazing. It's amazing that you can meet a farmer in Cambodia that has nothing to do, no, no ability to relate to anything that I can relate to and vice versa. And they can look at each other and say, Jesus is Lord of all. They can sing of his glory. They can sing of his fame. They can sing of his tenderness and compassion. This church in particularly was interesting, a church in northern Thailand. It was a farming community as well, and, and several of the women had come to faith in Christ, several being three. It was a church of about nine. And they decided as a church to start at 5.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Why? Because the women's husband made them get into the fields when the sun came up. So the church said, okay, we'll just start meeting at 5.30. Isn't that great? The compassion, the tenderness there, the commitment. Church after church where people would walk miles and hot situations, dangerous circumstances. They would worship with their life on the line under totalitarian regimes and yet joyful. Why? Because Jesus is Lord over all the earth. Jesus is Lord over all the earth today. Well, we've been walking through Matthew's gospel for the last several weeks. During our journey through the first 15 chapters, we've watched Jesus interact primarily with the Jews We've watched him heal. We've watched him teach with authority. We've watched him be confronted with the religious leaders. We've watched him do all kinds of miracles. Some have worshipped him. Some have rejected him. Some have followed for a while and dropping, dropped off. But last week, something really interesting happened, something that was different. You see, Jesus came in contact with a Canaanite woman. Stephen talked about it last week. A woman who was traditionally an enemy of the people of Israel. And this Canaanite woman walks up to Christ boldly and begins to ask him to do a miracle on her behalf. Now you can imagine the Jewish people, as Stephen told us, were in shock. Number one, that 
she would have the boldness to do that. But number two, that Jesus would address a woman and address a woman who was a Canaanite. But not only did he address her, he gives her a commendation. He says, woman, you have great faith. We've seen him tell the Pharisees they have no faith at all. We've seen him tell the disciples they have little faith. But here's a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, who he says, you have great faith. Only one other time does Jesus commend somebody for having great faith. And it's also a Gentile, a Roman soldier. You have great faith. But wasn't faith only for the Jews? But then again, maybe the Jews believed they didn't need faith. You see, they had the law. They had God's method and promise to have a relationship with him. They had circumcision, which was the mark that they were his people. They had the lineage and the heritage of Abraham. So they had Abraham's blood in their veins. They had the promised land where God would establish his kingdom on earth. They had the temple where Jesus' presence or God's presence would dwell. So what did they need faith for? What role did faith really have? You see, they knew that a Messiah would come, and there were lots of theories that he would, number one, be a king on a throne. You don't need faith. He's there. Another theory was that he was going to come as the great high priest, be, be in the temple, offering sacrifices for the people in their presence. Another was that he would come as a great prophet in the order of Elijah, calling the people back to their covenant relationship with God. Well, we know that all three of those things are true about Christ, right? He is a prophet. He is a priest. He's the king, but not the way they thought. You see, no one ever imagined someone like Jesus. No one imagined that it would require faith for their salvation. Well, today we're going to see Jesus as he talks to the Canaanite woman. Now he he goes beyond um this encounter with Gentiles and actually goes into the Gentile land. You might say that as he identified her as the Jews would have as a dog affectionately, we heard last week, he actually walks into the kennel today. So let's talk through the story. The first thing you may ask yourself is, didn't we do this already? Didn't we already talk about the miraculous feeding? Well, sort of. You see, there are two different accounts. There's one in last chapter, Matthew 14, and here, both are very similar. They both have uh, Jesus doing healings. The crowd sits and Jesus feeds a large number of people. But here's how we know that they're different accounts. You see, in chapter 14, that feeding was a Jewish crowd. It's a Jewish crowd. Today, our crowd is Gentile. There, there were 5,000 men in the last account. We have 4,000 today. The geography was different. In the, the account last month, it was in Galilee. Again, Jewish land. Mark tells us in his version of this story that we're in the Decapolis or the 10 Greek cities that would have been on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Interesting, too, there's the word basket is different in both accounts. That may seem like a, a very minor thing, but the basket... In uh, the Jewish account was the word the Jews would use for a basket. The Gentile account is a different word. It was a, a common Greek word for basket. It was actually the same word that we see in Acts 9 when Paul is let down from the wall, okay, through a basket. So imagine a much larger basket. Some people want to say these are the same accounts. They're not the same account. You have an account with the Jews, an account with the Gentiles. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence that this was a Gentile crowd is we see that they praised the God of Israel. You see, they identified Jesus as a God of Israel, not of 
to Gentiles. All right, let's turn there now. Matthew 15, we'll start with verse 29. It's page 821 if you're using your pew Bible. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. So last week again, Jesus gave us this account of the Canaanite woman he, whose daughter was healed. That was in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which would be the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So it says from there, Jesus went on. He traveled beyond there and he did something that people didn't expect. See, as he goes across the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, Jews would never continue to go around the coast south to the eastern, the eastern side, which today would be like in the Golan Heights, if you know Israel, this hilly country dominated by Gentile people. And so many Jews that would have been following Jesus would have stopped as Jesus continued along the shore, not to enter the Gentile land. And I can imagine that the disciples themselves were a little anxious about it. Okay, you healed a Canaanite woman, I get it, but are we really going to walk into their area? You see, their entire life, they were brought up to, to say that the Gentile homes were unclean, that walking into a Gentile home immediately made you a sinner. Speaking to a Gentile, eating food touched by a Gentile, when they leave a town, even if you have to go on business or if you, the, the um, nature of your journey is that you can't go around the town, you have to go through, you're to dust your sandals when you leave so that the sin of the Gentiles, the impurity of the Gentiles wouldn't stay on you. And here the disciples are beginning to see this man, Jesus, as a great rabbi, a teacher with authority, someone who does miracles. Could this one be the Messiah who's come to redeem the Jews? And yet all of a sudden he begins to go into Gentile territory. You can imagine that gave them some angst. What's he doing? Is he going to condemn them? But they followed The key point here is that he traveled not away from Gentile territory, but into Gentile territory. And the Gentiles themselves would have been surprised. They're not going to be used to a a, a Jewish teacher, a Jewish leader of any sort coming on purpose into their town, especially one that would preach grace and not condemnation. So it's a major event. It's something very different that we're to notice. It wasn't that Jesus was unknown in this area. Look at Matthew 4, 24 and 25. Earlier on, it said, Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So some from their area, the Decapolis, would have been there. They would have seen him. Some maybe brought their sick, but they would have never dreamed that Jesus would have traveled to see them in their area. You can imagine the sick that they would have brought would have been able to travel a long distance, covering many miles around the Sea of Galilee to get to this great Jewish healer. But now he's coming. The first big point I want us to get here is that Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. Let's look at 30 and 31. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, the healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
Imagine this scene. You have Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, with a little small entourage of Jews who are willing to, to follow him in the Gentile land. And, and people begin to say, there's the healer. Some they had seen before. And, and they bring the, the lame and the sick to him. And, and as he heals them, his fame begins to spread. It says, great crowds gathered. We, we, we're going to see in a minute, it was three days worth. So for three days, the fame of Christ begins to build. More and more people began to, to bring the sick. And, and it would be some who were unable to make the great long journey from before. And you imagine the hope that's there and the emotion that's there as person after person, blind now seeing, lame now walking. The commotion, people leaving their businesses, people leaving their homes, walking off the farms, going across to another town to get their loved one, bringing their loved one. The scene that would have been there, and it says specifically they put him at his feet. They put him at his feet. It's, the Greek phrase here is, it can mean one of two ways. One is a little more um, harsh, like they tossed him down. He, they put him down. Here, heal this one, heal that one. Or the other phrase could be that they simply got them positioned at the feet of Jesus and would have walked away. Either way, Jesus is not going to have any forward progress. He's going to have all of these afflicted people brought to him, put in front of him. Here's the point I want us to see here. It was the healthy that brought the sick, and Jesus was tender towards them. You hear that? See, the blind couldn't find their way to Jesus. The lame couldn't possibly walk there. The mute couldn't say, please take me to that healer. I hear what's going on. It was the healthy, the healthy that took the sick, took the broken, took the lame and put them squarely in front of Jesus. And Jesus treated them with tenderness. I was thinking about that and thinking that it's a great picture of what evangelism is supposed to be. It's a great picture of discipleship. It's a great picture of counseling and mentoring and serving one another. You see, it's always the mature that are called to do away with their freedoms for the sake of the less mature. It's always the healthy that are called to minister to those who are not healthy. It's those with means that are called to minister to those that are without means. Those with physical capacity that are to minister to those without physical capacity. And this makes sense to us. But sometimes we feel entitled to the things that we have. Sometimes we feel entitled to the strength that we have, the money that we have, the time that we have. Or we feel like it's the immature that are supposed to change to accommodate us. Or the the weak that are supposed to figure out how to get strong like we are. That's not what happens. It's the healthy that brought the sick to Christ and he was tender. He healed them, it says. Why did the crowds come? Very simply, they were needy. They were needy. Isn't that why you and I came to Christ? If you know him? We're needy. A friend of mine once said that when he came to Christ, he was decently well off financially. He wasn't uh, dealing with any addictions and he had a pretty clean life. And he said, you know, I thought God got a pretty good deal when he got me. We think that way sometimes, but that's not true, is it? We also came needy. We were convicted of sin. We were afraid. Some of us broken, some of us addicted, desperate, frail. 
You see, there's a misunderstanding if you don't know Christ that somehow you've got to clean yourself up before coming. Somehow you've got to beat this thing before Jesus will accept you. Somehow that you've got to get whole first or smart enough first or know enough or prepare yourself first. And that's simply not the case. John 6, 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, his sovereign, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Isn't that awesome promise? Whoever comes to Christ will not be cast out. Why did he heal him? Well, we're going to see more in a minute, but he's compassionate. He's compassionate. I love it too that Christ goes from this Jewish land to a Gentile land and we see no reduction in his authority, no reduction in his ability to heal or even no reduction in his desire to minister and to heal. See, false gods were always known in those days to rule in their geography. You had the God of the Egyptians or the gods of the Greeks or the Romans or the Amalekites or, or, or all of these groups would have their own God. And when you went into a territory, you were actually defying the gods of those people. And you, you had fear. And you were hoping that your gods could travel far enough to take out their gods in battle or whatever it would be. But for the, the uh, Gentiles to look and say, that's the Lord of Israel. God of Israel be praised. They were rebuking their own gods and recognizing this God has authority even above our own. Even today, Jesus is Lord everywhere. You know, it's hard sometimes to remember that as we see the news, as we see all the stuff going on in the Middle East and Northern Africa and Western Africa and all over the the world, as we see things here in our own community that we don't understand. God, where are you? He's right where he belongs, enthroned as Lord of all. And they glorified God, even as Gentiles. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days. They have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus makes this great statement. He says, I have compassion. There's only two times in the New Testament where Jesus says that about himself in the first person. Many times that we see that Jesus had compassion. We see it lived out. One commentator wrote, of all the feelings experienced by our Lord when upon earth, there's none so often mentioned as compassion. Compassion. He's compassionate. We see him healing. We must not forget that compassion is the motivation. You see, I think for me, when I began to really understand more and more of God's sovereignty, that we're to be centered upon Christ, that I began to be more afraid of saying anything like God values people, that you matter to God, that you're precious before the Father, that you're infinitely valuable. Because to me, it began to feel like we were, that was going to become more man-centered and began to reject that. But you know, it's true. God loves us. Jesus has compassion. That's what motivates him. John 3, 16, he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Lamentations three twenty two: the steadfast of the Lord, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Psalm 37, 25, David says this, when I was, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or their children beg bread. Here's a king that looks upon his kingdom and says, now that I'm old, I'm going to tell you, I've never seen God not be faithful. He's merciful. He's compassionate. 
He's kind. We've seen this several times in Matthew's gospel already, but why now does he have to tell us in the first person? Well, remember, he's in front of Gentiles. And I believe he's teaching his disciples something. You notice that we don't see disciples, the disciples' concern for the Gentiles, the dogs. Let's contrast this account from the one in front of the Jews. Look at this, Matthew 14, 15, in front of a Jewish crowd that was hungry, says this, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds and go in, to go into the village and to buy food for themselves. See, it had been one day, and the disciples said, I'm concerned here for the Jews. Let's send them away so they can go buy food for themselves because it's been a long day. Okay, now look at Matthew 15 in front of the Gentiles, 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, see, Jesus called them. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. You see a much more dire situation. Three days, no food. And yet the disciples don't show the same compassion. Jesus himself calls him and he gives him this great lesson in the first person. I have compassion. Not awesome. It seems even that Jesus was more concerned for their food than they were. It may seem cliche, but Jesus cares. Maybe it sounds like a bumper sticker you might see in a Christian bookstore parking lot. By the way, bookstores can't be saved, so there's no such thing as a Christian bookstore. I just want to get that out. Be careful. Jesus cares. It sounds like some bumper sticker from the 70s. But it's true. You know, Stephen shared a story last week about their trip to um, Children's Hospital. A powerful story. A long time that they were there. Well, we have, a, we have a story that relates to Children's Hospital. When our son Josiah was born 11 years ago, he was born with a heart, a heart issue. And he ended up taking a helicopter ride to Little Rock. When he got there, you know, they didn't know, was he going to be alive or not be alive? If he's alive, they were looking at open heart surgery. And it scared us to death. We were that couple, you know, our son's in this hard plastic box with tubes all in it, you know what I mean? And they're pushing him down on top of a, uh, uh, a gurney down the hallway. And we were the parents, the two walking behind, holding hands, puffy-eyed, red-faced, hollow and, you know, people are in the hallway talking and they'd see you come in and man, they don't know what to do. I mean, I've, you do that, right? We're, we're uncomfortable. We were that couple as we watched them load our, our infant onto a helicopter and fly away. And we had to get in our car and take a much slower trip to Little Rock. I want to tell you that God's mercy was unbelievable on that trip. I remember Michelle and I just praying and singing worship. Now, I'm not trying to make ourselves look spiritual. That's not our normal demeanor when we take a trip. We couldn't but praise him because his mercy and his compassion and his tenderness was so clear. And to God be glory, Josiah's fine. It's not always in the big things. You know, when we moved out of state, it was a hard time. We moved to Virginia and we were excited about it, but we were leaving everything. And my, my prayer before the Lord was one simple thing. Give my wife a home she likes. And God's mercy, we found this little farmhouse on the Shenandoah River in Virginia. And it was unbelievable. Neat time. Just celebrated that God would care enough to answer a simple prayer. Man. 
Jesus looks at the crowd. He says, I have compassion and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. That's our Lord. He has compassion. He's unwilling to send you away hungry. When we come by faith, he says that to us. Verse 33, the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Well, they said seven and a few small fish. You know, how do they, how could they ask that? They just witnessed the same thing. But this wasn't the last time they're confused. Look at this in Matthew 16. We'll get to this next in a couple of weeks. Jesus, aware of this, said this. Oh, you have little faith. Talking to the disciples. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? You see, there's something about the remaining that's important. But they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. He tells them they have little faith. There's three thoughts I had. Why why would this be the case? First of all, maybe the disciples didn't want to presume upon the Lord. I don't want to bother the master for something simple like food. I think that's very unlikely. Possibility. The second one where the disciples' faith maybe was too weak to consider another miracle. Well, he did it once, but surely not. But that seems unlikely too because he's healing people in front of him. How much greater is a miracle to divide bread? This is what I think. I think the disciples didn't share in Christ's compassion for the Gentiles. And they knew the Messiah would provide for the Jews. But the Gentiles? Wasn't he their Messiah? Wasn't he their Messiah? The answer to their law? The fulfiller of their sacrifices? Their ceremonies? The seat in their temple? Surely not them too. You may think this is a little bit of a stretch, maybe so, but we see in Acts 10, Peter still hadn't gotten it, even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Look at this in Acts 10. The Lord tells Peter to eat something in a vision that he would traditionally have believed unclean. This is what he says. The Lord says to Peter, what God has made clean, don't call common. And then he goes on in verse 28. Peter now is addressing other Christians related to a Gentile brother. Peter says this. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Isn't that awesome? So even then, Peter's still wrestling with this deep-seated prejudice. Deep-seated prejudice against the Gentiles. So here we might imagine he still has it, right? You know, sometimes we like to use the world's labels to identify people. We look at somebody and say, well, that person is this or that. It's wrong. Why would we call clean what unclean what God calls clean? It doesn't mean their practices are right. But when we use labels of cursing to identify, well, that person is an alcoholic or a druggie. That person is homosexual or whatever. If we're calling them, identifying that person, that's how we know them to be. We don't have compassion. We're using the enemy's words to identify people. People are created uniquely in the image of the risen God. You see, Christ had compassion. Look at the crowd and said, I know you, you're a cheater, and I know you, you're this and you're that. You're an adulterer. No, they came. He healed them. We're not to wink at sin. We're not to love at the extent of watering truth. But we have to be careful. 
to have compassion. Jesus says, how many loves do you have? You see, he called them to feed their enemies. Well, Jesus is not only compassion, he's sufficient. He's sufficient. Verse 35, he says, directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And then the disciples gave them to the crowd. This may seem insignificant at first reading, but Jesus breaks bread. This is the Eucharist. This is a messianic act of breaking the bread and blessing it. This is his body broken for you on the cross. And guess who the crowd is? They're Gentiles. He did the exact same act in front of the Jews. Jesus is Lord of all. He's the hope for both Jew and Gentile alike. He's the hope for you and he's the hope for them. He breaks bread. He does this messianic act that Jews would have expected from the Messiah to themselves in front of the Gentiles. We know from Matthew 14, he already told them that they were going to have equal access to him. This is good news. This is good news. He was sufficient. He is all they need. You see, the Jews now, they didn't need the temple, the Pharisees, the tradition, the festivals, the ceremonies, circumcision, the land, just Christ. He, adding nothing, was enough. He's sufficient for salvation, for them to embrace that, how freeing that must be. Oh, you mean it's finished? How freeing that must be. Paul, even to the Galatian church, they want to go right back to these practices. He says, well, you're crazy. What are you doing? You've been set free. You're free indeed. What good news that would be. How freeing it is for us as we are burdened sometimes to work our way to God, to earn his favor. Now, the Greeks didn't have to serve a pantheon of gods. See, they had to remember, well, who do I sacrifice for when I'm sick? What about when I'm childless? What about when I'm poor, single, aging, when my daughter needs a husband or she needs a child or, or I need business success or success at war. And so they would have to remember, okay, this is the God of this and they require sacrifice this way. And that temple is seven towns to the north. And this one requires this sacrifice and I'm poor. I'm going to have to figure out how to get this and take that over to this town and sacrifice over there and appease all of these things and work so hard stuffing themselves with these sacrifices. But now they can be free because Christ is sufficient and because he's compassionate, he's willing. The healings and the breaking of bread were clear signs that Jesus was the son of God into the world, the Messiah. This is really important. I'm going to give us three quick passages before we go on. Look at this. This is mess. These are messianic promises. And again, he's in front of the Gentiles. Matthew 11, two through five. When John, the Baptist uh, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he said to them, so the disciples, his disciples talking to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What's his evidence? He didn't say, yeah, it's me. He said, look at what's happening. Tell John what you see. Gentiles and Jews alike being healed raised up. 
Many, many texts from the Old Testament prophesy these days. One of them is Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. In that day, it says, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and the darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Hebrews 10, 12, symbolized by the breaking of the bread. It says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, he's sufficient to save. He's done the work. His sacrifice is sufficient for you and me. His sacrifice was sufficient for the Jewish nation. His sacrifice is all that we need. He is sufficient. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel itself, not the good news. He's compassionate, he's sufficient, he's also satisfying. And he's satisfying forever. Verse 37 and 38, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. This theme of satisfied, we see it. We saw it at the woman of the well where Jesus says, you know, if you take water from me, you're never going to thirst ever. We know Jesus is the bread of life. The word satisfied really could be translated as stuffed, completely satisfied, full, no room for more. Obviously, they collected up leftovers. That's a lot because I've been to some buffets and some people can really eat. They were stuffed, it said. They needed nothing else. They were completely, fully at rest, at rest. We see this theme of God being our portion. I love it in Psalm uh, 3 places, 16.5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. They were satisfied. The Lord is our portion, church. The Lord of the Lord alone. 119.57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. 142.5. I cry to you, O Lord, and say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He satisfies. He is our portion. He satisfies. I love Job's statement, Job 13, 15, when he um, has seen his entire world collapse. Everything that the world says is important, the wealth and the big family and the livestock and his health and everything decimated. And it's just Job with nothing but a voice and a thought before the Lord. He says this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That good. Jesus satisfies. Though he slay us, he's our portion. And he satisfies. But let me warn you that being satisfied in him means nothing else will taste as good. Everything the world offers leaves a bitter taste. Uh, Things we have ambition for, our hobbies, entertainments, relationships, etc. become less than satisfying. We drop a bucket list, but they don't seem to satisfy our expectations when we meet him, because Christ alone satisfies. This is a big crowd. We had 4,000, it says, men plus women and children. An estimate, I've read anywhere from twelve to 20,000 people sitting here on the ground that he fed. And they were all satisfied. There's some great symbolism here, too. You look at the Jewish crowd of 5,000 when they, when they collected the baskets. It says there were 12 baskets left over. Now, if you know your Old Testament or you've been in the church for a while, that number 12 in Israel might might come to mind. 
Most scholars believe that these represent the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, this is the Messiah, the one to come, who is bringing salvation to Israel. Bringing the 12 separate tribes back together as one people before God. 12 baskets. But look at here. We see that in the crowd of 4,000, there were seven large baskets left over. This number seven is oftentimes used to show perfection or completion. So Jesus bringing his mission to the Gentile peoples, the non-Jewish nations, completes his mission upon earth. The gospel has now gone forth beyond the Jews. The Gentiles are now being made as one people before God. And we see that in the New Testament, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but we're one. Awesome. We see in Revelation 7 that in the end, every tongue, every tribe, nation represented before the throne, all stuffed, all satisfied for all eternity. The last verse is this, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Mission accomplished. Application is this. Jesus is compassionate to all. Our question is, are you? Do you believe the poor just need to get a job, the hurting need to get over it, the weak need to toughen up, the older, those that are older than you need to loosen up, if they're younger, they need to grow up, the addicted, dot, dot, dot. We go there fast, especially in Western culture. Jesus is compassionate. It doesn't mean the solutions change, but are we compassionate? I'm going to put a, I have not put a, a verse on the screen, and we're going to pray together corporately right now. And we're praying for compassion. Romans 12, 15, and 16. I want you to read it. You're welcome to pray as families. If you're by yourself and you want to find somebody to pray with, it's great. If you want to pray alone, and I'll, I'm going to go on to the next point in just a minute. So let's pray together. The prayer is simply that God would open our eyes. He would open our eyes. If you know nothing else to pray, just ask the Lord to open your eyes. Let's pray together. Second point of application is that he's sufficient. Jesus is sufficient for the salvation of all people of all time. My question is, do you know him? Do you know him? For those of us that do, we have to continue to believe that God even saves his own enemies. And he calls the healthy to go and reach them. He calls us to give up our own portion for those that we see as enemies. We're positioned in our workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, um, in the college department we're in, the classes we sit in, the revenue office, for goodness sake, as I did this week. For the glory of Christ, do we really believe that God could use us to redeem his enemies? If you don't know him and you believe that you've got to earn something to get his favor, then you've bought into a lie. He'll accept you. He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He tenderly deals with those who come to him, and he doesn't cast them away. We're called as a church to pray to the Lord of the harvest. 
So we have Matthew 9, 37, 38 on the screen. And our corporate prayers for the loss in our community. So as a church, let's pray that we would be the laborers that God would send out. Let's pray together. Just pray for yourself that that would be you, your family. last point of application is simply that Jesus fully satisfies. And my question is, is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? Do we live our lives as if he's enough? Do we try to satisfy ourselves in other things? Look at what you're stressed about, you're worried over, what you spend your time on, your money, your thoughts, how you define success. Those will all help you see if Christ really is enough. Is he enough? Is he fully satisfied? My challenge is for you to make a fresh commitment to follow Him. Read your Scripture. Do what it says. And see what God does in satisfying you. I'm going to pray and close, and then we're going to, we're going to sing. Father, um, praise Your name, God, that You're compassionate. And God, that, that You're sufficient to save all men. God, that um, You fully satisfy. That, too, is grace. All of that is just mercy on Your part. I pray we as a church would model compassion, Lord. We would follow your example, that we would be compassionate first and foremost to one another. God, we'd defer to one another. We'd serve one another. We'd care well for one another. We would do whatever it takes to see one another grow. That our maturity would be marked by our willingness to lay down things, preference, just our own resources, God, for for your name's sake. And, And God, that we would not depend upon anyone that we would preach this message that you're sufficient to save to all who will hear. And God, no matter what happens in culture, no matter how far away the churches around us might might fall from truth, God, that we would stand unashamed, God. And God, that we would praise you as you fully satisfy. Lord, wherever we look to things of this world to fill our emptiness, wherever we want to pad our worries and stresses, God, with things of this world, or God, that we would stop and learn what it means to really just be your child, because you're tender and you care for us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.